Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. We blame the technology for, for addicting us, for causing all this distraction. It turns out it's never just the technology. There's always a root cause rather than a proximate cause. And the cause of distraction at work turns uh-huh. out from my five years of research, it's not correlated with how much technology the company uses. Rather, it's the kind of job environment. It's a company culture that's perpetuated by the leaders of that company that drives people towards distraction. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 61. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nir Ayal. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Nir previously taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Nir co-founded and sold two tech companies since 2003 and was dubbed by the MIT Technology Review as the prophet of habit-forming technology. He's the author of two, pe- <clears throat> excuse me, still early in the morning here. <clears throat> He's the author of two best-selling books, Hooked and How to Build, Hooked, excuse me, How to Build Habit-Forming Products and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And I have listened to Indistractable multiple times and it's a fantastic book. Nir, thanks Thank so you. much for coming on the show today. Oh, my really pleasure. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I, I know we've been, I know we've been I planning this you. for a while. And so yeah. um, finally happen, happening. And uh, you're in Singapore, which is, which is fascinating. Um, and I know we were talking a little bit before we started to record about the difference of what life is like in Singapore, how the pandemic has affected that nation, that community, mm-hmm. as opposed to us over here in the U.S., and uh, I don't want to get into the political side of it, as we talked about. It's not a political uh, podcast, but leadership is the focus mm. of the podcast. Yeah. And so what leadership lessons have you learned specifically in Singapore, specific to the pandemic? And then maybe broaden it a little bit as you see kind of like cause Singapore is maybe a, uh, a beacon of light you know, for the mm. world or for some other nations who are really struggling. Um, yeah. wh- where do you see the whole leadership piece intersecting with boots on the ground, practical ways for people that are, that are trying to get through a difficult time um, in terms of their health and otherwise. Yeah, I think, I think what I've learned being here in Singapore, and we've been here since March, and I have family in uh, uh, three different countries right now in uh, the United States. I have most of my family, and then I have family in Israel as well. And so it's been really interesting and saddening at the same time to see uh, how different countries have approached this crisis. Yeah. And I think the lesson I've really learned is the importance of clear communication and how a leader doesn't always have to be right, but a leader always has to be clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing the response here in Singapore compared to the response in Israel and in the United States where what we see in the United States and in Israel uh, is every day a different story, every day yeah. a different controversy, every day a, a, a hundred different opinions. And I think, you know, that's actually wonderful um, to have a diversity of opinions when 
there is a lot of uncertainty. I think America's strength, and the reason I'm a very proud American, is because when the future is uncertain, diversity wins. You want a diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. But when you have a crisis and there's no time for diversity because lives are at stake, there's no time for, and I mean diversity of thought, not, uh, you know, not from, yeah. uh, you know, social or any other form of diversity, yeah. but I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of argument, there's a time for argument and there's a time for decision-making. And I think when, when lives are at stake, it's not the time to argue about a known uh, course of action, right? And sure. so, if you look at the Asian countries, if you look at Singapore, if you look at Japan, if you look at uh, South Korea, uh, Taiwan is a shining example. These countries knew exactly what to do. And it yeah. wasn't rocket science. It's a respiratory disease. So put on a damn mask, no arguments. Here in Singapore from March, it was $300 fine if you don't put on a mask. It's not a political issue. It's, uh, uh, it's a respiratory disease. You keep yeah. respiratory diseases away by putting on a mask, um, isolating the sick and, and vulnerable and contact tracing. And it was nearly instantaneous in, in many, many countries, right? right? Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore. Right. Uh, it was virtually done, you know, in a week's time. And uh, very clear message, very on point, very, you know, communicating to the public. The prime minister was on TV all the time saying, here's what we're going to do. Very clear, clear pack. We're all going to lock arms and we're going to do this together. And um, Wow. What a difference between what's happening right now in Israel. Uh, my parents are in Israel, and uh, now they're having this second wave. They had it under right. control for a while. That's now they have right. all another second wave because of the yeah the Mishigas, the Balagan. You know, we couldn't we couldn't get our act together. Pulling in all the vernacular all there. I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah unfortunately, yeah. I've got two siblings there as well, and you know, with the upcoming when, when we're recording this on the eve of the. Jewish high holiday Rosh Hashanah, and so the and and really a, a sequence of holidays one after another, and the entire country is going to be in lockdown for uh, a few weeks time, and they're really trying to get control of it. I'm not exactly sure all the reasons it didn't sustain itself in that country. America is a whole other animal, um, but yeah, I mean what you're talking about here near is very interesting because. I very much think about a lot the concept of, you know, I, I reference this book all the time with, with my mastermind, with others. It's uh, not, uh, so forgive me, it's not your book, it's not mine in this case, uh, but it's Cain Blanchard's Leadership in the One Minute Manager and the idea of situational leadership. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we talk about leading in different situations in different ways. And when I talk about delegation, for example, <clears throat> so delegation is an appropriate uh, strategy for a leader to utilize in most cases where things are relatively calm. You could teach the other person, you can train them and you can coach them, guide them, et cetera, direct mm -hmm. them at the beginning as needed. And then eventually they learn how to become, you know, independent more. So they really take ownership of the process and then you can fully benefit from all of that investment of time and, and training so they can now take over the work that you used to be doing. So you could be working on things you really need to be doing. That's really mm -hmm. the intent with delegation. But then in moments of crisis, and of course, a pandemic certainly qualifies, it's less about delegating. It's less about all of that. It's more about directing, right? In moments of crisis, we need to tell people, this is what you need to do because right. we don't have time to negotiate. So right. even, even if you're wrong, yeah. right? Even, it's okay if, uh, I think leaders many times don't want to, they, they straddle the fence. And as Truman said, the buck stops here, right? Yeah. That a leader needs to say, look, we're going to do it this way because it's in a crisis. This is a time where lives are at stake. I might be wrong, but this is what we're going to try. And then if yeah. we're wrong, we'll reevaluate as opposed to hemming and hawing and, and uh, you know, keeping the truth away from people because you're afraid you'll frighten them. 
Yeah. Uh, that loses so much trust. It's another big lesson I think I've seen here is that right. you know the, the government is, is the, the level of trust in government here in Singapore versus in other parts of the world, specifically the United States right now, is just uh, you know it's just, it's an order of magnitude difference, right? People really do trust the government here uh, because they've shown time and time again that they know how to respond to these sorts of things. And and once you lose that trust, it's very hard to gain it back. Yeah. I don't want to make this the Ken Blanchard podcast, but I will (laughs) reference one other piece since you mentioned trust. So I do often reference that ABCD model that they, that he and his associates talk about. And what's fascinating is ABLE stands for, I'm sorry, A stands for ABLE, B believable, C connected, D dependable. And so A and D, I oftentimes ask, um, you know, in trainings and things, the audience, which, you know, how would you divide these further? And so we say able and dependable are typically about your ability to do the job, right? Your ability, actual ability, and your dependability, right? You're going to follow through. Whereas the B and C, which is I think where you're going with this near, is about believable and connected, right? Can I really believe the words that you say? Are are you telling me a a true reflection of reality, at least the way you see it? And Mm. are you taking the time to connect with me? Are you sort of looping me in or at least helping me to, to see how this relates to me and making that emotional connection. And so in, in, in a pandemic, and I think this is really a good place to pivot in our conversation, and I think in a pandemic, it's certainly times of, of high anxiety, of distance, you know, so many people working remotely, not having the ability to connect physically, connect in proximity and things like that. We need to be as leaders focus very much, I think, on creating the over creating, so to speak, working extra hard on the believability and on the connection. Because mm-hmm. ability you can really do from anywhere, dependability, I can show up at my computer, I can show up on Zoom. We showed up for this call this morning, or in your case this evening, you know, mm-hmm. with a certain degree of predictability. You know, I needed to be there, yeah. I showed up. So I was dependable. Yeah. You know, I yeah. may have done in the context of other things, but I showed up. But the yeah. believable and the connected part are really the critical piece here. So I'd love to hear your perspective on leading in, I know this is a little bit broad, but leading in a pandemic, what are the, and, and then I want to move it into your expertise as I see it, which is the productivity mm-hmm. piece, the lack of distractibility, because I know there's so much that can go on on technology. So we'll get there. But for now, mm-hmm. let's stay in the leadership element of it. How do you see leadership having changed short term? What do you imagine as the long-term implications of change specific to leadership as an outgrowth of life after the pandemic, whatever that ultimately looks like? Yeah, I think I would, I would change Blanchard's B uh, from believable okay. to benevolent. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think believable sounds like you're tricking people. I think benevolence, you know, we, we, there, my friend Shane Snow has done studies on this where he looks at uh, the aspects of leadership based on these two axes of competency and benevolence. Uh-huh. And people will trade competency for benevolence, mm-hmm. uh, that we will trust a leader, right? Trust is built. Uh, we will trust a person, even if we don't think they might be the most competent, but they're, uh, he, that guy's our idiot. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to follow him because he's our guy, right? Mm-hmm. Or gal. Uh, and so that's, before and you that's go something further, very important. Before you go further, if you don't mind, could you just define, I, I, I believe I know what you're talking about when you talk about benevolence, but for yeah. those who are not fully clear on the it. The leader has my interests. I'm sorry? The leader has my interests at heart. My interests. Okay. Right. So even if the leader's a dope, uh-huh. he's my dope or she's my, uh, he, he, she's my dope. So yeah. people will follow people who say stupid things uh-huh. because- 
they represent me. They love me and my people, my cause. Uh, and I think that is because they believe at their core that uh, that person really loves me and mm-hmm. loves my people. Uh, and, and that has, you know, that, that aspect, that's a very, very important aspect of, of trust. Uh, particularly, I think what we see today, I think for, for many leaders, they, they can't really be benevolent because they're thinking, well, I don't want to get too close to my people because I might have to fire them. Mm. Well, people can smell that a mile away, right? Or here's, here's a cliche we use all the time. This company's like a family. Really? You treat your family like this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel bad for your family if that's how yep. you treat your family. Yeah. Most companies don't treat their employees like family. Are you kidding me? You give your family, you give your employees unconditional love? No. <laughs> no. And so we use these ridiculous metaphors um, that we can't, you know, they're, 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 they're checks that our mouths write without being able to cash, right? Wow. It's interesting because uh, one of the things that I, that I often reference in my, in my trainings relates to something John Maxwell talks about. He says, if I believe in the leader and I believe in her message, you get behind the leader. That makes a lot of sense. If I don't believe in the leader and I don't believe in her message, get another leader. So those are clear. What happens in between though is interesting. If I believe in the leader, but I don't trust her message or I don't support her message, get another message, Mm. get another vision. On Mm. the other hand, if I support her vision, the vision makes sense, but I don't support the leader, get another Mm. leader. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you can't separate the leader from his or her vision. And that's yeah. a fascinating but really powerful piece here. And I think it really reinforces what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's so interesting how, you know, when you think about the, you, you would think, let's hire the best person for the job, right? right? We want the smartest person, but that's almost never the case, particularly when you look about at, at politics, right? The quintessential leadership roles. Right. We don't elect the smartest people in society. Have you noticed that? Why, why, if we wanted to elect the smartest people, uh, right, the Nobel Scholar. Why? Why don't we have PhDs be presidents? We never yeah. have had a PhD become a president. <laughs> we don't. I mean, look, George W. was no genius, right? right. But he was he was our guy, right? That's right. what people, the voters, believed. Right. And I think that right. you could say something very similar with Trump, right? right. And in fact, if if leader is a is too smart, people don't trust the leader because they don't yeah. want somebody who can outsmart me, right? And we don't so want them speaking on higher than a fourth grade level. In many right, cases. right. And it's not because the voter is dumb. I don't think that's part of it. I think people are pretty darn intelligent, even though we, you know, sometimes they don't act in, in, in yeah. very intelligent ways. I think people are pretty smart. But I think what that shows us is that that benevolence does trust competence, it does trump competency. So what does that look like practically for leaders? Let, let's let's bring it down to um, a corporation, you know, team, or perhaps a small business, whether we're operating remotely or now back in the, back in our workplace, what are things leaders can be doing to really create that feeling of benevolence, that connection, that trust you've been talking about? Let's, let's make it, you know, in terms of strategy, what would you recommend? I, I think it's walking the walk. Um, I think that this is the biggest problem. I think that leaders typically are hypocrites. Uh, and, and we don't do what we say we're going to do. We're hypocrites with our staff. We're hypocrites with our children. Uh, we say one thing and we do something else. And I observed this uh, ad nauseum when I was researching my book, Indistractable, where I would get called in to teach a company how to help their employees focus, right? Some mm-hmm. CEO would call me and say, we have a terrible problem of distraction. People can't seem to stay on task. They're, uh, they're pulled in a hundred different directions. And then I would come into this meeting 
And, you know, we would call, they would call in uh, 10 to 20 people paying their salary for the day to come hear my workshop. And in the back of the room, who was it that was using their CEOs cell phone? There on the on the black. Would, would it be the the, <laughs> the you know the, the the older folks? We love to blame the Gen Xers and the Gen Yers or or you know the the millennials. Right. Oh my gosh, they're so distracted. They're always playing video games. Not in my experience. You know who is using their device at the back of the room? The big boss. I'm so important. Yeah. I have to check email yeah. nonstop. And then you look around and you ask why people don't get their work done and why they're constantly distracted because you are distracting them. Yeah. <laughs> you are the problem. Yeah. And you're 100%. not leading by example. I love it. I, I actually, unfortunately, um, learned by example uh, this lesson the hard way. And I, I reference it. One of the things I, I write about in my book over here, Becoming the New Boss, is the, the need to build trust and to really communicate well what your intentions are, what your behaviors, what, what you're doing. So I thought that I needed to be, this was still when Blackberries were, were popular and, and widely used. I thought it was the responsible thing for me to be always responding uh, to various texts and, 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 and pings and whatnot that were happening. So I'd be mm-hmm. sitting in a classroom, ostensibly observing a lesson. Per, the, ki- the, the kids all saw me, obviously. The teacher knows that I'm there. And I've got my BlackBerry out. Now, even when I was using it more correctly, let's call it, because I was actually entering content for what I was observing. In other words, I was uploading into a cloud-based system what I was actually seeing that would eventually generate a report and a conversation and whatever it is, data that we'd be collecting about what's actually happening in classrooms. Nobody knew that what I was doing related to the lesson, they still thought I was texting or they still thought I was replying to email. So yeah, that's a critical piece. And I think all of us need to be mindful of walking the walk. And um, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so I, I think there's, the, there's a few problems here. One, there's the visual element, right? That when people, you know, I, we see this all the time where people have a meeting uh-huh. and, uh, you know, the big boss is the person in the, in the back of the room checking email or on their BlackBerry or doing whatever right. uh, in the name of productivity. And one that has kind of a secondhand smoke effect, because when people see that some, one person is checking email, well, now they're triggered, right? Now they're saying, oh my gosh, what's happening with my inbox? I better start checking my email as well. Now we have a, we call these zombie meetings, right? Where we have a bunch of warm bodies in the room, but no brains, uh, because nobody's really, really there. People are physically present, but they're not mentally present. And so we have these pointless meetings where people are thinking about something else and yet we're all somehow in this room together. That, that's in so your book, right? That's yeah, in this yeah. yeah, okay. Right. So not only is there, is there the, the, the physical element, one of the, the things that I was really amazed to discover was that studies have found that there is a certain kind of work environment that literally drives us crazy. Okay, I'm not being figurative here. We know that there's a type of work environment that has a causal relationship, and which is very rare in the social sciences. Typically, we talk about correlation, but here we talk about causation. There's a type of work environment that literally causes depression and anxiety disorder. And uh, when I first heard about this study, I was like, hmm, okay, I wonder what type of work causes depression. And so I would have thought, you know, sad jobs, right? A sad job, like, uh, you know, if you're a mortician or maybe you're a, you know, you have to, you're a veterinarian and you have to put dogs to sleep or something. I don't know, something sad, Yeah. but that's not at all correlated. That in fact, what we find, it's not the kind of work you do. It's the kind of work environment you do it in. And so it's a confluence of two factors, two types of, of, of conditions within the workplace that literally causes depression and anxiety disorder. And those two factors are workplaces 
where you have high expectations coupled with low control. Okay. High expectations and low control. If you have high expectations with high control, no problem. People can flourish. It's environments where you have high expectations coupled with low control that people are, are, are literally you know, driven to these disorders. And what tends to happen in many office environments is what we call this cycle of responsiveness. This came out of the work of Leslie Perlow at Harvard. She talks about how you know, we are driven with this cycle of people constantly feeling they have to be connected. And that perpetuates this evil culture. That, that, that is the underlying problem is the, the culture, not the technology itself. The technology is the tool that is used in a crappy uh, uh, culture environment that perpetuates this always on mentality, which lowers our sense of control. When we feel like we're constantly running around, we can't keep up. There's more emails than we can ever handle on the Slack channels and the phone calls and the text yep. messages. When we feel like we are losing control, what do we do? Well, we feel worse, right? People, when people feel depression and anxiety, that feels bad. And what do they do to try and regain their sense of agency and control? Guess what they do? They send more superfluous emails that don't need to be sent. They call more ridiculous meetings. You know what the number one reason we call meetings? To hear the boss talk out loud. That's why most meetings are, are called. It's incredible. How many meetings in a week do we have without an agenda? I used to have meetings in my high school student council. We had agendas for every meeting. But I would say 75 to 90% of meetings that are called in corporate America today without really? an agenda. That yeah, high? Most, no, sure. I mean, when was the last time somebody circulated an agenda before your latest Zoom call? I always never did. Happened. I always did. The that, problem I had is that I just lived on my agenda and I was just going point by point by point. But that's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, so most, most of these meetings are, and so I talk about in the book, it's, the book is called Indistractable. Yeah. Most people think distraction is from the technologies, the pings, the dings, you know, Facebook right. and email. And, and, and that is the certainly part of it. Right? But that's yeah. almost, yeah, the dopamine, that's BS. Um, but we can talk about that. Uh, but we taught, we blame the technology for, for addicting us, for causing all this distraction. It turns out it's never just the technology. There's always a root cause rather than approximate cause. And the cause of distraction at work turns uh -huh. out from my five years of research, it's not correlated with how much technology the company uses. Rather, it's the kind of job environment. It's a company culture that's perpetuated by the leaders of that company that drives people towards distraction. Fascinating. I believe without mentioning it by name, because I'm not sure I can, I know, I think you did in your book reference a particular consulting group, which was an exact combination of high expectations and low control. Yeah. I used at to least work for there. A while. I can tell you all about it. Yeah. Yeah. I worked, was at the What's yeah. that? I said, at least for a while, I think you talked about how right. they changed. Right. Right. So I profile a few companies in the book. One of them right. is a company was, I worked at as my first job out of undergrad Boston. at the Boston Consulting yeah. Group. Uh -huh. Yeah. So BCG, very prestigious uh, strategy consulting firm, along with McKinsey, you know, they're, they're kind of like big competitors. And uh, I worked there for a couple of years. It was awful. <laughs> it was terrible. Uh, very high expectations, very low control, always on for a while. That was the kind of culture that they had. And I remember that back then they had terrible employee turnover, terrible churn. It was a real problem. So they embarked on figuring out what to do about it. And uh, they, they had this company-wide initiative. They started actually with a very small team of just eight people. And they asked them a simple question. It, it, it was called PTO, predictable time off. They asked them, what would it take to give everyone on the team one night off per week? Just one night off per week. What would that take? 
and they said, oh, we could never do that here. We're, uh, you know, we are in the client services business. We work in a distributed workforce. We are an international company. No way we could take one night off per week. We have to be always available. And then they said, okay, well, how about this? Let's say it's not, oh, sorry about that. That was an external trigger. Um, let, so then we said, you know what? It's not for you, okay? It's not for BCG. Let's say one of our clients comes to us, Delta Airlines or IBM says, hey, we want this for our employees. What do you think? Can we, can we do this? Okay, well, let's put our heads together. Turned out they solved the problem like that. That the real problem was not the technology. It wasn't that everybody was carrying around Blackberries or whatever, and that was causing the problem. The problem was that they couldn't talk about the problem. Mm -hmm. Because if you talked about the problem of distraction, if you talked about the fact that, hey, you know what? Uh, in order to do my work, I need to work without interruption for an hour, okay? Can I have that hour without any emails and phone calls for just an hour of my day so I can do my work? Or how yeah. about this? When I go home to my family, I don't want to work. <laughs> I want to be with my family because that's what normal human beings do. And so when, and, but they couldn't talk about that because then they would be seen as lazy, as not team players. They might get fired. Turned out when they had the freedom to talk about this, we call this psychological safety. When mm -hmm. they had the freedom to just talk about this problem, they came up with solutions instantly, mm -hmm. right? Because the problem wasn't the technology. The problem was that they couldn't talk about the problem. And so now BCG has used what this one group discovered of giving people the psychological safety and a form to talk about these issues. They've expanded it throughout the company. And today, if you look on glassdoor.com, they're one of America's best places to work. And they have a very, very low churn rate because they just started talking about this problem. Interestingly enough, you would think, oh, well, if people get time off where they can't be constantly connected, well, don't the clients suffer, right? Didn't the business suffer? No, exactly the opposite. You know why? Because if you can't talk about the problem of distraction at work, if people are too scared, they're going to get fired because they don't want to yeah. talk about this problem. I got news for you. There's all kinds of other skeletons in the closet they're not willing to talk about. And so when you give people the psychological safety to know yeah. I can talk about a problem without the fear of getting fired, things get better, not just when it comes to distraction, but around client service as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a totally different environment, so much healthier. And I, you know, near the problem in, in having conversations with people like you is I want to stay on forever. And I know we're limited in time, but you throwing out these, these ideas, which are just they're, they're so ripe with, um, with, with uh, application. And I'm thinking about, do I first work on, on my high expectations or the element of low control and this and that? I think the control seems to me to be the more important piece here. But let's- Right, right. you let's, can keep the expectations yeah. high, by the way. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because companies like this want high expectations. And it's yeah, of course, want our companies to have high expectations. We just- Absolutely. That element of control first and foremost. And I think that's, that's right. That's the part. It's about cycle. It's about agency. It's about that feeling of control that you can actually do something. Yeah. And so, when, you know, if you take someone's control over their time, mm -hmm. that is, that, you know, that, that is a fundamental need. Uh, you know, it, it, it's like sleep deprivation, right? When you can't, yeah. when you can't sit and focus, when you can't sit and think, uh, then your whole, you know, your whole work life is disrupted. That's right. That's right. And yeah, I mean, I think this is, we're really hitting at the root of it. So I just want to take it over a little bit because we talked about the pandemic. Obviously, again, nobody knows exactly how the rest of it will play out. I have a feeling, you know, my wife, for example, her company, a large corporation based out of Minneapolis, but they have, they have regional offices. Her office that she, even though she's been working remote for a long time, the actual physical office was closed and the company closed a number of other regional offices as well. And all those people are now remote. And I think that the remote workforce is going to be much more of an ever-present part of the, 
the new normal, so to speak. So mm-hmm. let's talk about productivity and distractibility, specifically or indistractability in that context. What are some strategies? What would you say is the biggest challenge for the remote worker? And what yeah. would you say are some concrete strategies that people who are working from home, who've got lives, who've got possibly kids at home or other sure. things going on, how can people like that still show up and be most effective during their work time? Yeah, so the pandemic has really changed uh, people's lives in so many ways. And I think that what we're seeing is that the world has become a more distracting place all of a sudden. You know, I wrote my book, Indistractable, well before the pandemic. It came out in late 2019. And I thought the world was pretty distracting back then. Oh, my goodness. It's way more distracting now because of a few different things. One, we have more stress and anxiety these days because we're all worried about what's going on with this pandemic. And so that's created for many people, more of what we call internal triggers. And this is, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to dig deep, but this is really a a fundamental lesson that we have to learn that time management necessitates pain management, okay? Time management necessitates necessitates pain management, that if we don't control these uncomfortable emotional states, fear, loneliness, uncertainty, boredom, anxiety, stress, if we don't learn how to deal with those emotions, we will never deal with distraction. That fundamentally procrastination and distraction is not a character flaw. It's not that something's broken with you. People love to jump to diagnoses and say, oh, I have this disorder or that disorder. Chances are you don't have anything wrong with you. What we don't have is the ability to get out of our own way because we don't know how to deal with discomfort. We have to learn how to manage our psychological pain. Because the reason we look for escape from these uncomfortable sensations is always through a distraction. That's how we look for escape with procrastination and distraction. It's an emotion regulation problem. So now that we have more of these uncomfortable emotional states because of the pandemic, people who don't know how to deal with discomfort are more likely to go off track. That's a big thing that's changed. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's changed is that the structure to our day has for many people been obliterated, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the fact that we used to get, have to get the kids up in the morning, get them fed, get them off to school, sit in traffic, go to work, have our meetings, go to lunch, that kind of structure in our day, you know, for many of us, it felt like the grind. But what we're finding today is that without that structure, our productivity disintegrates. Yeah. That in fact, there, I just saw an article, it kind of cracked me up, that uh, Google is seeing a record number of people typing in the search query, what day is it? Really? Like people can't keep track of what day it is, right? Wow. And I, I can sympathize, right? Like it's yeah. very easy for these things to come for day after day to feel all the same. Uh, and so what, what, what people oftentimes resist is making a schedule. Uh, and, and that's a big mistake because they think schedules, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, uh, be told what to do. Yeah, I, I, I want to be spontaneous. I have so much to get done. And they think they'll be more productive without a schedule. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, Mark Andreessen, you know, probably the most famous angel and uh, uh, venture capitalist investor in Silicon Valley, uh, he always was a thorn in my side over the past few years as I did my research because he famously declared uh, in this guide to productivity, and everybody listens to him, you know, he's the founder of Netscape and he's kind of a god of Silicon Valley. And every time I would give presentations, people say, yeah, but Mark Andreessen says don't keep a schedule. He just came out with an article a few days ago that said, I, I quote, I have done a 180. <laughs> <laughs> Today, really? he keeps a time box schedule. He's come and around to the near way of thinking. Oh, he is absolutely, like literally, I, I share this article because I'm so proud that, that yeah. uh, my side won. Yeah. And the yeah. sides yeah. are really the to-do list people. 
and the uh-huh. time boxing people. Yeah. And the to-do list methodology needs to go to hell because it is killing people's yeah. productivity. People don't realize when you run your life on a to-do list, yeah. you are probably committing the, 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 the biggest act of self-sabotage. If you wake up in the morning and say, what do I do today? Let me look at my calendar as opposed to let me look at my schedule. You're yeah. making a huge, huge mistake. Yeah, it's, and that's such a timely comment because I have a productivity blueprint and the second piece talks about to-do list specifically and how to pivot. They, I, I actually keep one, but I keep it as a basis to then mm-hmm. move into the calendaring piece. Okay, right? so, so you have, yeah, I need to MIT. clarify. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's not that I hate to-do list per se, right? If you, right. So I have time I didn't in my think, schedule. I didn't think you meant task. that. Yeah, right. thank I you mean, that. you shouldn't run your life with a to-do list. If you, right. if you wake up in the morning and you're like, what do I do? And you look at your to-do list, but your schedule is blank, that's what I'm talking about. Right. But for example, I have a list of a bunch of little admin stuff I need to do, like two-minute little tasks, and they're all bunched together in a time box called admin. Yeah, right. sure, that's fine. Right, yeah. And of course, if you have a to-do list, it's so hard to see what's priority, what's most important, all these exactly. things. Exactly. So what do you yeah. do? What do you do? You look at the to-do list. You haven't quite gotten your coffee. I'm not really feeling like doing that big project that I've been procrastinating on. I don't do the thing I need to do. I don't do the important work. Right. Let me do the easy work. Let me do the urgent work. Let me just check some more emails. Let me scroll some Slack channels. Let me check the news as opposed to doing what I really should do, which is the hard, important task. Yeah, I think we should talk more often just because <laughs> you'll keep me on task. So we're going to pivot here, Neil, near to a, uh, a, a quick and fun little back end, which I call the rapid fire segment. Uh, you've, been in, you've been in Singapore for about six months or so at this point. I don't know how much you've gotten out uh, because of the pandemic, but tell me something neat, something cool about Singapore that most people don't know. Uh, by the way, these to... are all these are all really short. So we oh, okay, okay. a lot, but like short answers here. Living in Singapore is like living in the future. That's okay. what I will tell you. That it is incredible. They have robot dogs that patrol the park to keep people, uh, you know, to make sure people social distance. They have robots in restaurants that clear your uh, your plates from your table. It's incredible. Like wow, this country has so embraced technological innovation. It's really amazing. That that is fascinating. And something you have learned about yourself, again, in the pandemic. Something I've learned about myself is that, oof, that is, uh, you know, I would say that I, uh, I really struggle uh, or I struggled uh, with the news. I, I didn't, you know, for a while, things were pretty, I don't want to say under control, but it didn't feel like we were in this crisis. And so when we went into this crisis, I really had to revisit the techniques I talk about in my book because under the guise of, well, I just need to know what's going on in the world. I I was checking the news way too much, spending way too much time, uh, what we call today doom scrolling. And it wasn't serving me. And because, you know, what I forgot is that, you know, the news media, and I don't care if it's CNN or Fox News or Facebook or all the news media, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they monetize your eyeballs, right? They make money by turning your attention into cash. You know, we call it paying attention. Just like we pay with money, we pay attention. I love it. Because it has value. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something I constantly have to remind myself of is that the news is not your friend. And I don't care who you subscribe to. If they have an advertising business model, they want you to spend as much time on that site as possible. They don't make the news for you to become educated. They make the news for you to spend time on that site. Now, some amount of of information is very appropriate, but what I've learned, my good friend James Clear taught me this, if the goal of the news is to educate you, right? Well, then 
we don't need to go to the traditional media to get information. You know what I do? Once a month, I have in my calendar a time box to go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia has the monthly digest, okay? Wikipedia, people you know, put in the most important events of the month. So once a month, I go to Wikipedia. If you want, you can do it once a week if you want or once a day. The most important information that you should know. Completely unbiased. It just says the facts, right? So we don't have to turn on the TV and spend hours watching some you know, uh, talking head blabble on. We can just get the information we need to make sure that we're informed citizens. Perfect. So one app you would recommend for folks to use to be more productive? Uh, there's a wonderful app called Forest. Uh, and I talk about this a bit in my book about how technology, ironically enough, can help us fight distraction from technology. So there's an app called Forest that uh, you, should, you should definitely check out. I love that app. Okay. And the last one is a self-care technique that helps to serve you, sort of refresh you, and of course, keep you productive. So uh, there's a technique I talk about in the book around that critical first step of mastering internal triggers, which is the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule, this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And the 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction in 10 minutes. Okay. And this is a big departure from what I I remember this. Yes, I remember this. You know, I was told, you know, use self-control, use willpower. And even saying those words kind of makes the hair on my neck uh, stand up because I used to be clinically obese. Mm -hmm. And I remember that people would tell me, oh, you know, just stop eating so much. Use more self-control and willpower. It's not helpful, (laughs) right? Right. And and, and I would use strict abstinence. I would tell myself, don't do it. And it turns out that, in fact, strict abstinence can backfire. That it's like pulling on a rubber band. When you pull on a rubber band, you pull tighter, 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 tighter. And then finally, when you let go, it doesn't go back to where it started. No, it ricochets across the room. So when you tell yourself, don't eat that chocolate cake, don't smoke that cigarette, don't check Facebook, don't check your email, you're pulling on that rubber band tighter, tighter, tighter until when you let go, it feels so good to just relieve the discomfort of telling yourself, don't do it. So abstinence in many occasions doesn't work. And this is why I hate many of the tech critics out there that say, Go on a digital detox. Just stop using your phones. Come on. It's like saying, don't eat. We need our technology for our livelihoods or we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get fired. <laughs> so we can't right. tell people, stop using your tech. So this 10-minute rule is very, very effective where what you're telling yourself is not no, but instead not, not yet. yet. Yeah, beautiful. So this works with chocolate cake. It works with cigarettes. It works with cell phones. It works with it's Facebook. Actually, it's, saying, it's actually rooted near in Jewish tradition because the idea of sinning is hmm. identified by the sages as having a temporary moment. Uh, let's just call it a temporary moment of insanity. Like the, hmm. I just sort of gave into something which deep down I know is wrong. So if you yeah. can just sort of push yourself out of it a little bit and it distance yourself, then that, that sounds fascinating. I think it's a great yeah. strategy. One yeah. last life lesson, please, Nir, before you go. You've given us so much, but I feel <laughs> like just, just like wrap it up for us, a life lesson, whether it's distractible related or just living. Sure. You know, it's, it's a, it's a so great- So I'll give you, yeah, go ahead. if you were going to summarize my book, Indistractable, with one mantra, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Okay, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. When we think about so many of our problems in life, it's about this- this impulsiveness, whether it's what the sages tell us, whether it's what Plato told us about akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest, this is not a new problem, right? Technology did not create this problem. This problem of impulsiveness, we can beat. And the way we beat it is by planning ahead. We have a gift. Human beings have a gift that no other animal on the face of the earth has, which is that we can predict the future with higher fidelity than any other creature that roams the earth. We can see, we can predict what is going to happen. 
And so the difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is not that you never get distracted. I still get distracted from time to time, but here's the thing. It happens once. When I get distracted, I know why I got distracted and I can do something about it. As opposed to a distractible person, they go day after day, week after month, year after year, getting distracted by the same stuff without doing anything about it. An indistractable person knows why they got distracted and they take steps today to make sure they don't get distracted again tomorrow. Okay, so that was unbelievable. And I'm going to have to really analyze all of my behaviors moving forward to make sure that I'm as indistractable as possible. Nir, I've been, I think I told you this before we got on, I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. I know we scheduled, had to cancel, whatever the details were, but I've been really, really looking forward to it. Thank you so very much for making this happen for me and doing it a few days before the high holiday so I can really enter my new year with uh, a new commitment to not only using my time more effectively, but really being more purposeful in general. It's been very inspiring. There's been a ton of gold here. And anyone who does not have copies of Nier's books, Indistractable, and please remind me the title of the other one. Hooked. Hooked. Okay. So go ahead and grab those, whether you like it in print or you like it on Audible, whatever your your source is. Nier, how can people find you? I should have asked you that before. Where can people learn more about you? Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So my website is called nearandfar.com, but Nier is spelled like my first name. So it's N-I-R and far.com. And if you go to nearandfar.com, there's actually a complimentary indistractable workbook. It's 80 pages. We couldn't fit in the final edition of the book because it got too fat, but you can get it for free by going to nearandfar.com. It's there for you, uh, whether you buy the book or not, frankly. Uh, it's a great guide to help you on your path to becoming indistractable. And you're active on social too. I see your stuff on Instagram yeah. all the time. So a ton of Yeah, I definitely still use this stuff, but I use it on my schedule, not the yeah. social media company. There you schedule. go. There you go. <laughs> anyway, thanks again, Nir. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 